Well, over the past few years, my wife and I have come to a mutual understanding. And the understanding is this. Every Tuesday night, no matter what, whether we get home later than usual, whether our kids are sick, whether we feel as if we're swamped from work, no matter what, we have to set aside one hour to watch the greatest show on television, and that is This Is Us. How many people watch This Is Us in here? Got, got quite a few. I'm convinced the writers of This Is Us are some of the best in Hollywood, mainly because they take these stories, and it's not even in linear fashion, they take these stories that appear to have no connection whatsoever, and by the end of the episode, they all bring it together to the point where more times than not, I'm trying to convince my wife, I'm not crying, it's just allergies. Like, it's that kind of show. And what's amazing about the show, if you're thinking of not giving a bunch away, but season one, episode one, there's this guy by the name of Kevin, uh, who is a hit television actor. Like, he's got a great show, and yet he's got a chip on his shoulder. And they're showing his story as he lives in Los Angeles. And then they show the story of this girl named Kate, who wrestles with her weight and battles insecurity and depression. And then they saw a story of this guy named Randall, who is a successful African-American businessman. And as you're listening to his story, what you find out by the end is that his biological father abandoned him at a fire station. And all the while, as these stories that appear to have no connection are going on, they are peppering this story that takes place from the 70s of this young couple preparing for the arrival of their children. She is about to give birth. And when everything comes to a close in that first episode, what you begin to realize is is that those three people, Kevin, Kate, and Randall, are brothers and sisters. And and this couple from the 70s is the mother and the father. And your mind is just blown. And they do this to you every single week. But the thing about This Is Us is it's just a show, right? It's not real. Although we might connect with some of the stories, the characters do not exist in real life. And as entertaining as the show is, what I would suggest to you is that it has nothing on the true stories that we find from God's Word. Stories that oftentimes appear to be disconnected. Stories from the Old Testament that appear at times to make no sense, where you're asking, how does this fit into the overall grand narrative that is found from God's Word? And and what's important to understand, especially when you look at a passage like this one this morning, a very awkward, obscure text, is what you begin to realize is, is that all of these names are actually representing stories. And what I would say, and I teach biblical theology, and one of the things that I try to stress over and over again to the people who are in that class is that the Bible is not made up of a bunch of disconnected stories. Rather, the Bible is made up of one grand story known as the mere narrative that finds its culmination in Christ. That everything, no matter if you're in Habakkuk, if you're in Hosea, if you're in Exodus, if you're in Titus, if you're in John, or even here in Matthew, everything is centered around Christ. So as we come to our text this morning, we're asking ourselves the question, how does this make sense? Why is this important? Why is a genealogy of someone who lived thousands of years ago important for me? Because if we're honest, what do we normally do when we come across a genealogy in the Bible? We skip it, right? 
or we gloss over it super fast, we pay no attention to it, and then we get to the good stuff. But time and time again throughout the Bible, there are genealogies. There's a genealogy of Cain in Genesis chapter 4. There's a genealogy concerning Adam from the line of Seth in Genesis chapter 5. There's a genealogy of Noah and his families in Genesis chapter 10 as they present a table of nations. And now here we are again in Matthew 1, right out of the gate as they're making some sort of case for who Christ is, it starts with a genealogy. Why? I would say because it's of vital importance. It's important not just for the first century Jew. It's important not just for first century Gentile, but it is important for people in the 21st century, even here in Yulee, Florida. Because what this text seeks to do is it makes a case concerning the identity of Christ. This morning, we're going to look at a case for Jesus's identity, but we're also going to see from this genealogy is a case for Jesus's mission. Because all these names, as they represent specific stories that almost appear disconnected, they all find its culmination in Christ. Now, let's answer the question, why would he start with a genealogy? Why is this important? Well, to the Jew, it was vitally important. You see, this book is written primarily to a Jewish audience. And what's important to understand is that according to Joshua 2, as the people of Israel prepare to take the place that God had prepared for them, this place flowing with milk and honey, that before they could receive their designated territories, they had to provide proof of where they came from. They had to provide proof of their genealogy. So if you were from the tribe of Reuben, you would go to Joshua and the leaders and say, this is my tribe, this was my grandfather and my great-grandfather, and he'd say, perfect, take your land. If you were from the tribe of Judah, you'd do the same thing. This was my father, this was my grandfather, this is where we came from, I am from the tribe of Judah. He'd say, perfect, take your land. But it was not just to take your land, it was to even purchase property. You had to provide the genealogy. And not only for purchasing property, but even for filling specific positions in Israel. You wanted to be a priest? You had to prove with a genealogy that you were from the tribe of Levi. And according to the book of Ezra, what happened is once the people actually found themselves coming back into the land, there was a great controversy. Some people were denied the ability to be priests For the sole reason, not because they didn't feel as if they were qualified, but because they couldn't prove their genealogy. They had no record of it. So think about this. As a Jewish person who finds themselves now in the first century hearing about this Christ, what is one of the best ways to provide a case for the identity of Christ? A genealogy. And so that's what Matthew seeks to do. He says, notice verse 1, as we look at a case concerning his identity, look what it says. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus who? Christ. It's important to understand, Christ is not his last name. Jesus doesn't come from Joseph and Mary, Christ. Christ is a title. And the word Christ, which is also translated according to the NIV as Messiah, is this word anointed. When the Jewish person would begin reading this text, and they'd say, okay, let's find out if this is true. He'd say, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, that is, the Messiah, the anointed one, immediately their ears would perk up. Because this is the one that had been promised so long ago. This is the one, according to Isaiah 61, that the Jews eagerly waited for, who would preach good news to the poor. 
who would preach the importance of binding up the brokenhearted, who would proclaim freedom from the captives and release prisoners from darkness. This is the one, according to Isaiah 7, would come and be born of a virgin and would be referred to as Emmanuel, God with us. This is the one, as Deuteronomy 18 says, who would be a prophet who would come from God himself speaking on behalf of the will of the Father. And now all of a sudden, Matthew comes out swinging by saying, it's not the genealogy of Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the carpenter, but instead the very one that they were longing for. This is my case, Matthew says. As he continues with this text, he says he's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. Let's start with Abraham because as this anointed one was promised, He was promised even before Abraham, according to Genesis 3.15, that a seed would come from the line of Eve and this seed would come to make things right. That this seed would crush the head of the serpent and put an end to sin and death. And when we come to Genesis 12, we find out that that promise continues in Abraham. And God says to Abraham, not only will I bless you and make your name great, not only will I make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, he says in Genesis 22, your offspring will bless all the nations of the earth. You see, in order for Jesus to be truly considered the anointed one, he has to come from Abraham. And yet what's also amazing as the text continues, and you can write some of these down. So Genesis 3.15, that's the first proclamation of a gospel. It's continued through Genesis 12. It's promised that the offspring would come to actually deliver them and to ultimately bless the entire world according to Genesis 22. But then in Genesis 49, God says this. This is to Abraham's great, great grandson. He says to Judah, who is in this line, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. This anointed one is referred to not just as the Messiah. He is understood according to the line of Abraham as a great deliverer. He's understood as a prophet. But according to this promise that we see from Genesis 49, he will also be king. He will be the one who will reign over the living and the dead. He will be the one who will reign over all of the earth. And so it makes sense when you're looking at this passage that he says he's not just the son of Abraham, but he's also the son of David. Because what you understand with David is that David continued this promise from Abraham. And if you notice, you can write this down, 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. After David, who was referred to as a man after God's own heart, after, after David was favored by the Lord, God says this, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. I will establish his kingdom. Now listen to this, verse 16. And your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Matthew comes out here and says, here he is. This is the anointed one. This is the great deliverer. This is the prophet. This is the king. And as he continues throughout the rest of the gospel, people are going, this makes sense. Now we see from the gospel of Matthew that he preaches Isaiah 61, that he preaches to the poor. 
That he seeks to set free those who are held captive. That he's born of a virgin birth. All this makes sense. Why? Because the genealogy is here to prove it. Now let me just say this then, based off a case for his identity. If Jesus is understood to be the deliverer, he's understood to be the prophet, if he's understood to be the king, and it comes through this line filled with people with all sorts of stories, what can we declare here? We can declare that the plan of God will always come through. That a promise that was made with the very first verse from thousands of years before, as all these names are listed, God is saying to his people, I never forget. I always keep my promises. My plan will always be accomplished. And if we see here a case that God had promised to deliver this one, to to send him to redeem us and to save us, then why is it that we constantly question his plan for us? With all these things that take place here and all these names that we're not going to go through, we'd be here for hours. And some of you were probably panicking, thinking we were going to do that. We're not. But you go through these names and you're asking yourself, in the midst of all this, how is it that God is still going to prevail? And you see it. You see how it all makes sense. You see how it all comes together. Why is it that we think in the moments where we struggle, where we experience disappointment, where we experience setback, that God in his plan in this very moment is not good? That he's not working it out for our good? That we can't rest on Romans chapter 8? That all things work together for the good for those who love God. This is a promise for his children, mind you. Those who've come to faith in Christ, that no matter what is taking place, whether you've lost someone you love, whether you've lost your job, whether you've lost a spouse, not maybe through death, but even divorce, all of these things that are happening, that God, if you're his, is working it out for your one day completion when you stand before Christ. This is why we should be able to say, as Paul says in Philippians 1, verse 6, that I am confident, not I hope, fingers crossed. No, he says, I am confident that he who began a good work in you will what? Bring it to completion. That's assurance. And if we see all these names, and if we go back through the Old Testament of all these stories, we see how that comes true. I like to give it with an illustration concerning food. That makes sense from a chubby guy like myself. Think about a brownie. I'm convinced in the new heavens and the new earth that there will be brownies. They come directly from God. And we will get to eat brownies and not get fat. It will be awesome. But I want you to think about some of the ingredients that are found in a brownie. One of the ingredients calls for raw eggs. Who loves to be able to sip on some raw eggs in the evening while you watch a show or read a book? No one. Unless you're like Rocky Balboa and you down them for the protein. Nobody likes to eat a raw egg. And yet for some of you right now in this moment, it feels as if what you're going through is like someone's forcing you raw eggs. Down your throat. And it's difficult and it's painful and it's frustrating and it makes you want to throw up. Yet the picture in... Ultimately, the main uh, completion of the task is not found in just those raw eggs. One of the ingredients calls for salt. How many of you love to munch on salt while you're out fishing? 
Nobody wants to munch on salt. You put salt on a wound, it burns, right? And there's moments where it feels as if we're munching on salt. Some of you are munching on salt right now, and you're asking, how can this ever get better? And then there's moments where some of the good ingredients take place. Moments of victory, success, where you get to eat some of the walnuts if you're a nut fan and you like nuts in your brownies. Or chocolate. And all God's people said, amen, or chocolate. But these are good ingredients, and we love to be able to enjoy those moments where we are eating the chocolate, and yet what we discover is without the salt, without the eggs, it cannot be brought to completion. What God is doing in your life through the moments of both the raw eggs and the salt and the walnuts and the chocolate is he is taking your life with both the good times and the bad times and he's working them out for your good. So when you stand before God, you will say, it makes sense, glory be to him. This is how I would persevere. This is how I would keep going. We cannot focus. We cannot be defined by the salt. We can't be defined by the egg. We have to be defined by what's found in Christ. And no matter what's happening, just as God ensured that the son who was considered the anointed deliverer and king and prophet, that just as God would ensure his plan would prevail through him, he will ensure that the plan that he has for you will prevail. So we take heart. Notice next. Not only is there a case for Jesus' identity, but number two, we see here a case for Jesus' mission. Look at the mission that Jesus ultimately reveals, that, that Matthew's revealing through the genealogy of Christ. I want you to look at some of these names. He mentions Abraham, and oftentimes we think of Abraham as a hero of the faith. We think of all the good that Abraham did. We think about how he put his child up on this altar and was ready to kill his son in order to do the will of God. But what about the bad moments? We tend to exalt people, especially once they pass, but we forget oftentimes the mistakes were made. Think about Abraham. Abraham sold his wife out not once but twice to a foreign king. Sarah, his wife, wrestled with the promise of God and said, yeah, this might happen, but it's not going to happen through me. I'm way too old, so here is my servant. Sleep with her. She'll give you a child. And he does it. We think about some of these other names. We think about Jacob. We love to, to sing and, and, and talk about the faith of Jacob, but Jacob wasn't a good dude. <laughs> Jacob disguised himself as his brother so he could get his brother's blessing. Like just straight up sold his brother out. He, he manipulated his brother to sell his birthright. Jacob was a guy who was broken, who, who battled with sin. David, sure, was a man after God's own heart. But we know the story of David, right, from 2 Samuel, as Pastor Mike preached through that book. Of all of the things that took place when he decided to pursue his own pleasures of the flesh rather than what was good in the eyes of God. But notice some of the others. You know, a genealogy held weight based on the men that were found in the genealogy. Women were never mentioned. And yet what Matthew does in this text is he mentions not one, but instead four women. Why? Because Matthew is going somewhere here. Matthew is presenting a case for the mission of Christ. Notice the first one. 
It's found in verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. You know the story of Tamar? Genesis 38. You can write down Tamar, Genesis 38. Read it this evening. Such a beautiful story. Tamar is married to Judah's son, and he is so wicked that the Bible tells us that God kills Tamar's husband. God says now to the brother-in-law, you are to take this woman as your own. You are to provide for her, and he refuses, and God kills him. And so you've got Tamar, who feels as if she's going to remain a widow her entire life, and Judah is moved by the brokenness of his daughter-in-law, and he says, listen, I've got another son who is very young, but when he's of age, I will make sure that he takes care of you, that he provides for you. And we hear nothing else. And then when the son gets of age, guess what happens? Judah doesn't follow through. And so Tamar, in an act of desperation, finds herself not sure what she should do, so she comes up with a clever plan to disguise herself as a prostitute. And to hide by the side of the road. And when her father-in-law is walking down the road, she entices him to sleep with her. And then she gets pregnant by her father-in-law's child. And when this comes out, and Judah finds out what has happened, that she's not married and yet she's pregnant, he says she deserves to be burned alive. But then he finds out it's his. Oh, how convenient. Now she deserves to live. And yet, Tamar is found to be in the line of Christ. Tamar is a great, 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 great grandmother to Christ. Look at the next one. It says, verse 5, And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by who? Rahab. We know Rahab's story. Joshua 2, Rahab is not a woman who has disguised herself as a prostitute. Rahab is a prostitute. And as she finds herself living in Jericho, you have the people preparing, the people of Israel, to enter into their promised land, to take over Jericho. And rather than wage war against them, rather than sell them out, she hides the spies. And when the Canaanite authorities come in, she goes, I have no idea where they are. Maybe they went that way. She is ultimately showing here that she's submitting to the Israelites' God. That she is submitting herself to the covenant people of God and they keep her alive. And notice what it says. Rahab is in the line not only of David, but also of Christ. Rahab. Notice the third. Same verse. It says, in Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. This is verse 5. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. You can find Ruth's story, it's very easy, in the book of Ruth. And what we find out about Ruth is that she's not just an ordinary Gentile, she's a Moabite. The Moabites were descendants from the incestuous relationship of Lot and his daughter. Remember the story? The daughter's painted, they're not going to have kids, so they sleep with their dad, Noah. She's one of the descendants. And the Jews were instructed, don't ever, ever associate with the Moabites. They are awful people. And yet during the time of the judges, one of the Israelites goes and he marries this woman by the name of Ruth. And the Bible tells us that God kills the husband. And yet rather than throw her fist up at the Israelites' God, she submits to God. She goes back to the nation of Israel with her mother-in-law. 
And what we see here is that Ruth becomes the great-grandmother of who? David. She becomes the great-great-great-great-grandmother of who? Christ. A person who disguised himself as a prostitute, an actual prostitute, and a Moabite. Notice the fourth. This is found in verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Who is that? Bathsheba. Woman who disguises herself as a prostitute. Actual prostitute. Gentile Moabite. And an adulterer. And these are the people in Christ's line. What is it here that Matthew is trying to communicate? Matthew is trying to communicate that when it comes to the mission of Christ, it is a mission that is going to be marked by grace and compassion. It is a mission that's going to be marked by mercy. That rather than giving people what they deserve, because that would be fair with a just God, God instead lovingly extends mercy And gives grace to people who don't have it all together, who don't come from the right families. And it is these people who are used to usher in the arrival of Christ. This is what he does in our lives. This story is not just about the lineage of Christ. This is our story if you are a child of God. We are the ones who are broken. We are the ones who make mistakes. We are the ones who don't come from the right families, who don't say the right things, who don't smell a certain way or look a certain way, who aren't found in a certain tax bracket, who don't vote the way that someone else might vote. And yet God is not interested in any of those things. He casts all that to the side and he redeems people like that. Is that your story? Because some of you, it doesn't sound like it is. You're just like, yeah, that's not my story. It is your story. It's my story. It's the story of a church kid who was raised from church since he was a tiny little infant all the way up until he was 15, and he played the part. And he knew the right passages to quote, and he raised his hands in singing, and he led sometimes some Bible studies for the youth, and yet all the while he was a rebel towards God. And because of it, because it was a slap in the face of God, I only deserve death, and yet God extended to me grace. As I heard the preaching of the word, and I realized for the first time I was in need of a savior. God pursues broken people. And what's amazing to me is that the author is communicating this. The one who's writing it is who? Matthew, who also went by the name of Levi, and he was a tax collector who was hated by his fellow Jews, who was considered worse than a prostitute, than a prisoner, and yet in the middle of engaging in sin as he's robbing his own people, Christ shows up and says what to Levi? Follow me, and he does. Levi says, just as God saved me, I see the case for his mission because look at the people in his line. Look at Tamar, look at Rahab, look at Ruth, look at Bathsheba, look at all these others who are here, who may be exalted as great, but who made mistakes as well. So my question is to you, do you know 
the Savior. Do you know that this applies to you? Some of you feel as if you've done so much that you can never find yourself being able to receive grace or mercy, and yet this passage says otherwise. Some of you come from messed up families. Some of you have made some really big mistakes, and you're still to this day suffering consequences from it. Some of you are here this morning and others are shocked because the moment you walked in the door, they were convinced you would burst in flames. And yet, Christ gave his life so that you wouldn't have to give yours. That's good. That's great. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me just say to you this morning, if you feel as if you've done too much, based on this, know this, there is no sin too great that the cross of Christ cannot cover. If there is, then he's not God. Some of you this morning have a disdain towards people like this. Some of you were raised in a good home. Some of you didn't go through the things that some of these people went through. You're considered upstanding citizens. You got most likely to succeed in high school. And that's not a knock on any of you who did that, but some of you think, well, that's well and good that God is on a rescue mission for saving people like this. As long as they worship over there and we worship over here, we don't want to intersect. <laughs> Friends, let me just tell you, when you find yourself one day standing in heaven in the presence of God, there is no subdivisions. There is no gated communities. So just as we see that this is our story, we have to understand that in the here and now, God is using us as the instruments to reach his people, which means we engage those who are broken like this. If you have it all together, engage those who don't. If you think you have it all together, pursue those who are in absolute turmoil. When's the last time you prayed for those who are lost? When's the last time you prayed for your neighbor? When's the last time you prayed for someone who doesn't vote like you or look like you? Because God is not interested in just saving those who are well-dressed and look nice. He's interested in saving these kind of people. A person who disguised himself as a prostitute. A person who was a prostitute. A person who didn't come from the right family. And a person who was an adulterer. Man, we must engage. We must pursue. We must love. So where are you at this morning? Some of you this morning are doubting God's plan. Look to the genealogy. Look and see how God is ensuring that exactly what is to take place will so that if you're a child of God, you will be made complete. That it'll be worth it in the end. Some of you, I just keep repeating it. Some of you don't feel like you're worthy. You're worthy. You're a sinner who's not worthy of salvation, yet Christ says you are worthy. So my prayer this morning is that you take a genealogy serious. That you see the truths in a bunch of disconnected stories, and as you piece it together, you say at the end, glory be to God, for this was my story, and yet now I am from his eternal line, and I will be a child who will dwell in the presence of the Lord forever. Amen?
Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, your word is good. God, your mission is one that we did not deserve because left to ourselves, there is no good in us. There is no worth that could allow us to obtain salvation on our own. And yet, your word tells us you love us to the point that you would redeem not people who have it together, but people who are rebellious, people who are opposed to you. And for that, we praise you. Father, may that not simply be a message that we meditate on. May it not be something where we say, man, that was great. But Father, may it be one that we actually go out and we actually put this into practice. May we love the lost. May we seek to counsel and pray for and pursue the broken. May we open our homes up to those who do not look, act, talk, smell like us. Father, may we be a people who are of light, not of our darkness, and may we communicate to the world that they can find salvation in Christ just as we found it. We thank you for your spirit that opens our eyes to see the truths of the gospel. We thank you for the genealogy. Father, I pray that whatever we do today as we leave this church, that we would make much of you And that we would see your work in our lives. And even in the moments where we wrestle with doubt, God, that we will see that you will bring it to completion. Father, we love you. We trust you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning, the altar is open. If you want to come and pray, man, I'd love to be able to pray for you. If you want to to share what God is doing in your life, man, share it. Um, But just before you leave, please make sure that you do business with the Lord.